You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast. And now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dundas. That's right. You're listening to another episode of the Co-Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast. I'm your co-host from BleacherReport.com, Chad Dundas. And joining us, as always, from USA Today and MMAJunkie.com, it's your friend and mine, Mr. Ben Folks. Ben, uh, we got those essays read. Yeah, we did. This week. Fuck everybody. We read your essays. That's right. Um, they we, said it couldn't be done. They did. They all said that. The so-called experts. They said we were too lazy. And Who's they were, laughing now? They were marginally right. Do we want to do the uh, the winners now or wait for a while? Do those later? Or? Let's, let's, let's make them wait. Okay. Let's make them sit through some goddamn podcast here. And then we'll, we'll do them later? And then we'll do them later. Okay. That sounds good to me. Uh, three rounds, as usual, for the co-main event podcast this week. In round number one, Scott Coker is back in the mix, replacing Bjorn Rebney as the president of Bellator MMA. As for every other possible thing about how this might affect that company and MMA in general, eh, he's going to have to get back to you on that. And in round number two, Vanderlei Silva is pleased to have solved his problems with the Nevada Athletic Commission. He'd like to thank his doctor for coming and bids you all a fond good day. And in round number three... Two UFCs in one day again this weekend. James Tahuna fights Nate Marquardt in New Zealand, and Jeremy Stevens fights Cub Swanson in San Antonio. I was going to try to think of a joke, but then I decided it's not really worth it. All that plus Are You Fucking Kidding Me, Master Tweet Theater, and Just Saying Stuff. But right now, like we always do about this time, let's do a little listener mail. Listener mail. The first piece of listener mail comes from Omar in Baltimore this week. He writes, it has recently come to my attention that Ben used to work for the IFL. That means that he was part of one of the most monumental pieces in recorded music. I'm talking, of course, about the recording of the IFL anthem Fight League. What was it like being a part of this recording at any time during the piece? Were you thinking to yourself, this must have been what it was like to sit in on those Abbey Road sessions with the Beatles? <laughs> or did you feel more like Jeff Beck felt when he gave Jimmy Page that 59 Telecaster that he used to record the Stairway to Heaven solo? Or, with all that talent in the room, was it more like being J.R. Robinson during the recording of We Are the World? Uh, were you aware that this would be such an important piece, not only for the history of the sport, but the history of music when you were sitting in on the session, or did it take a while to really hit you? Tell all you can. I leave you with this. When I say international, you say fight league. Now fight see, league. here's the thing. I had never actually watched this video until we got this, this piece of mail. How I is check, that possible? Checked it out on the YouTubes and it is amazing. Yeah. Yeah, it's kind of incredible. Uh, okay. This makes the dudes who recorded the Super Bowl shuffle look like fucking EPMD or some <laughs> shit. Like, you know, I want to, I want to first off come out and say that I had no prior knowledge that this was going to happen. I was not at the recording session. From what I recall, it seemed like, uh, when the IFL was on the road at one of the events and everybody's like staying at the same hotel and you know how they would do it where they were like at each IFL event, there would be, two team contests so like four teams total which meant like four coaches total and then some other people depending on where we were hanging around that kind of stuff i think this was in atlanta the ifl had hooked up with a dude named jazzy fay uh, a music producer noted hip-hop producer that's Jazz right jazzy fay um and he led them down uh, a lot of weird rabbit holes uh and they were just seemed willing to do whatever 
and this was one of them. And it seemed like uh, people were drinking in the hotel bar and then got in a van and went over to his recording studio. Yes, this is all detailed in the video that I watched. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay, well, I thought that they would maybe want to hide that part of it. No, that's, it seemed to, that seemed to be one of the highlights. Was that That's how this went down. Yeah. Uh, I do remember when, you know, sitting in the, the New York offices that we had and the little sad little bullpen where my desk was, uh, and they were like, oh, hey, you got to watch this video. We, we put this together. We're going to put this out virally. It's going to be a big viral video hit. And they had me watch it, and I was just like, wow. Like, I hope that we intend to play this up, like, as a joke. Like, we don't intend for this to be taken seriously. And it was it, – maybe it was like the first cut wasn't really like that, and then they did some some other cuts that were, like, trying to suggest that people should not take it too seriously. I think Jazzy Faye is also the same one who recorded, like, an official IFL, like – um anthem different than this uh, this had the coaches rapping uh, yes matt Lindland's rapping ability is particularly memorable uh but they also they like it was one of those things and this was constantly happening at the ifl where i was the only dude who was like a fight fan aside from like kurt otto like the the founder but they would like come to me with something like this and be like what do you think about this you think the people on the share dog are gonna love this and like you know they'd play it for me and i would be like honestly I would be happy if I never had to hear that again. And they'd be like, well, we're doing it anyway, so find a good way, find a good spin to put on it, and we're going to put it out there. And it was like, okay. Same thing when they would do like weird tournament substitutions. Like, what do you think? Isn't this awesome? And I'd say, no, people are going to hate that. And they're like, well, we're doing it anyway. So that's pretty much what I can tell you about so, that. So how many of these raps did you personally ghostwrite? Did you come up with uh, Matt Lindland's raps or uh, Pat Militage's rap? Did you write the Igor Zinoviev rap? Uh, where I think the first two lines are Russia, Russia, I'm gonna touch ya. Yeah, that is that are those are the first two lines. Um, weirdly, they didn't come to me for any rapping expertise. Not like they didn't want you to hook up Henzo Gracie with his lines or anything like that. Oh, well, I'd assume that Henzo freestyled his joint. <laughs> uh, yeah, I didn't make it through the whole thing. I have to admit, I turned it off after. It's like three actually, minutes long. It's like four minutes long, and I turned it off in the middle of the Igor Zinoviev. I guess at the end of Igor Zinoviev's two bars that he raps. You know, most MMA fans probably only remember Igor Zinoviev as the dude who got his collarbone broken by a, a slam from uh, was it Frank Shamrock, Evan Tanner, one of those. It seems like we don't even remember him for that. Yeah, then. but. Igor Zinoviev is an awesome dude. Uh, one of those guys who, once you get to know him, seems like he has led a very interesting life uh, and is a, a really nice, awesome guy. It's a shame that they made him do that horrible rap. The second piece of listener mail this week comes to us from Joaquin uh, Kalantari. You know, Joaquin emails us a lot. and I Friend still, of the show. Still have no idea how to pronounce his last name. Well, he, I'm sure, expects that at this yeah. point. He listens to the show enough. He writes, according to Loretta Hunt, one Nicholas Diaz is on his way back to the octagon, and if you believe Anderson Silva, the former middleweight champ is not opposed to granting Diaz's now year-old respectful request for a fight. Is it just me, or is this the most awesome fight ever? Uh, I'm going to come out and say it's got potential. I think that uh, it's a fight that we probably would not argue with and if it's a fight that gets put together i think would be a sign that somebody needs to sell themselves some pay-per-views at the end of this year after what is starting to look like kind of a bleak slate of uh ufc pay-per-views um but would be a fun fight would be one that would certainly uh bring a lot of excitement prior to the bell as jim ross once famously (laughs) said about the ultimate warrior and then would probably result in an unbelievable ass kicking right 
I don't know. See, that's the thing. I know that this fight must be awesome because even though I can think of a lot of arguments against it, man, I want to see that fight. I, I would I would pay uh, more money than they would probably ask on pay-per-view to see that fight. There's just going to be so much not giving a fuck. No, so much zero fucks dicking around with hand gestures and stuff in the octagon. Can you imagine it? It's going to be great. Yeah, I, I mean, how would you think that Nick Diaz would go about doing anything in this fight? Hoping Anderson Silva is old. That's yeah. how he'd that's how he'd do something. I guess that would be his best his best shot. Because well, you know, we I know... feel like one of the things about Nick Diaz that a lot of people overlook when talking about his fights is that he is not afraid to get punched right in his face. No, over and over again. And see that's the thing, is I, I think that how he would stand a chance in it is by absorbing a lot of punishment, not going anywhere, and just walking Anderson Silva down. Uh, I mean, I'm not saying like I would necessarily pick him to win via that strategy, but like I do think that when you know that guy has that strategy against somebody like Anderson Silva, whatever happens, you're going to want to see it. It's going to be something like memorable to watch. Ah, yes, I would definitely want to see it. I don't know that anyone has ever fared that well against Anderson Silva with the strategy of going out there to absorb punishment in order to dish out your own. Right. That sounds like sort of a Chris Lieb and I'm going to go out there and roughneck him. Yeah, but this is strategy. a different Anderson Silva. I mean, we think. for one thing, he's a little bit older. He'll, he'll be coming back off of this injury. And I know that we see over and over again uh, videos of him walking up some stairs and carrying some Gatorades and close-ups of his legs as he moves about just so we can be sure that both his, his legs are still where they ought to be. Uh, but you know, I think that it would be reasonable to, to assume that it's not going to be the same Anderson Silva who was punking guys like Forrest Griffin fighting from 10 seconds into the future if he comes back and, and goes up against a guy like Nick Diaz. I think that, you know, age might start to catch up with him a little bit. Or who knows? Maybe he'll come out there and be absolutely fucking awesome. And that in itself will be pretty cool to watch. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. I just want to. I just hope that Nicholas Diaz gets his, gets paid his money for coming back for a fight like that because that would be the kind of thing that would really move some pay per views and would prove that he is exactly what he said he was, which is you know a marketable fighter at a time when the UFC doesn't have that many of them. You know, if he does come back and take that fight, man, they need to at least pay him the kind of money they paid James Tony to come out there and make a damn fool of himself. Well, you would think, yeah, and that would be really be the impetus behind booking this thing, right? Would be that you. You need some marketable fighters to do marketable things in order to to uh, freshen up what otherwise is probably going to be maybe the UFC's worst year on pay-per-view since the Ultimate Fighter started. But hey, man, I'm, I'm all about it. I would watch this shit in a heartbeat. I think everyone would. Uh, the next question comes to us from Josh Montgomery. He writes, imagine that you two did not cover MMA for a living. Okay. You are just a couple of blue-collar workers up there in Missoula who like to get together, drink beer, eat Turkish delight, and watch MMA as fans. Being that Missoula, like San Antonio and New Zealand, do not get regular trips from the UFC, <laughs> uh, and those are pretty much the only two things that you can make a comparison between Missoula and San Antonio and New Zealand. Uh, if the UFC came rolling into town with either of the two Suckfest cards, uh, <laughs> wow! <laughs> the opinions expressed by Josh <laughs> Montgomery do not necessarily reflect the opinions of the co-main event. Okay. Uh, if they came rolling into your town with either of the two Suckfest cards that they are rolling into those markets with, again, Marquardt and Tahuna are 0-5 with three KOs, a submission and a lopsided loss since 2013, and they are a goddamn main event, would you be inclined to spend your hard-earned money on a ticket 
Now, see, I think this is an interesting question because this gets to the heart of a lot of the discussion that we have about the UFC and about how, you know, and about international expansion and about uh, how people constantly come to the press conference and ask a million questions of like, when are you guys coming back to Dallas? Donna, when, you, when you come to Manaus. Yeah, that, that, that kind of stuff. And I have to say, well, I think my answer would depend here. It would depend on if I had ever been to the UFC before. Yes, that's a big part of it. we have talked about in the past, if you have not been to the UFC, it's worth going to uh, to sort of see the spectacle and see the uh, the presentation uh, because now that they do this 46 times a year, they've pretty much got it down. They do uh, uh, an exciting and, and high production value live show. Um, however, I would say, like, if you are a big-time UFC fan who is super interested in going to an event, uh, you would want to do it in Vegas. You yeah. would want to go to an actual big-time UFC event, and if you're going to shell out the money to get the, the, the kind of seats that make it worthwhile to go, you wouldn't want to go to one of these local events like uh you would almost want to go to a, one of these san antonio uh or new zealand events uh just because you didn't have anything else to do sort of like th these aren't the kind of events that get uh hardcore fans really excited so it's a complicated answer for me i would think that like uh if to to, to take josh montgomery up on his hypothetical question if we were the same guys that we are now, and I have, I, I just am not covering MMA as a job, but I have still been to a bunch of UFC events. If the UFC came to Missoula, I would probably not go if it had the James Tahuna, uh, Nate Marquardt card. You know, I was thinking about this too along those same lines. Like, cause like you said, if you were like, and we should clarify, when you say Missoula has in common with San Antonio and New Zealand, a place that the UFC doesn't get to very often, uh, for Missoula, probably maybe will never happen that the UFC will come here for good reason because right. we have no state athletic commission for starters. And if the UFC ever did come to Montana, I know that they would fuck it up and they would go to Billings. Yeah, they'd, they'd probably go to Billings. And if you, you know, if they were going to come to Missoula, like, you know, why not just go to Spokane or, you know, a slightly bigger city um, somewhere where people from this part of Montana would still travel there. But OK, let's say they did. And let's say, you know that we had never had the live experience, although we had kicked around the idea of going to Vegas for a 4th of July weekend card or something. I still think that if the UFC was in Missoula and if the, if it was not an actual, you know, total wallet buster to get to go, we'd probably talk ourselves into buying some tickets. And well, I'm, I'm trying to look up right now to see how much tickets cost for the San Antonio event, because I probably wouldn't pay the, uh, the pay-per-view I mean, aren't aren't like good tickets to pay per views like three hundred bucks now or like? I guess it depends what you think of as a good ticket. It but seemed okay. I'm just looking at the uh, Ticketmaster uh, UFC San Antonio page. It looks like there's a sliding bar on here that I can that I can say how much I want to pay for tickets. Uh, it looks like fifty dollars is your cheapest. And 460, it says 460 and then plus, like there's a little plus sign next to it. So. Okay, well, I mean, but also you'd have to imagine if they came to Missoula, they'd probably go to the Adams Center, right, mm -hmm. uh, at the University of Montana. There's not like a, a nosebleed seat really in the Adams Center uh, for something like that. So you're going to tell me that you wouldn't pay 50 bucks to get to go and even if it's a crappy card... Man, you know we're going to go and, uh, you know, have a few drinks at the Golden Rose first uh, and, and walk on down the, the bridge. You go over there to the Adams Center, buy a few beers, hoot and holler. Uh, 
yell kick him in the balls a few times and then call it a night. I mean, it would still, you could make an argument in that situation that like, it's worth going for the experience, but it definitely wouldn't be the kind of thing where you were going like, well, I gotta see this. It would be the kind of thing of like, well, it's in town. Why not? Yeah, maybe. I guess it depends on the night. What else was happening? Like, I wouldn't be that fired up to go. I think that's the overall, the the overarching point here. And to me, it like it, it just underscores all of this discussion about where the UFC is going and like whether or not MMA is legal in New York and all of this stuff. And it's just like, man. If it doesn't really matter, does it? Like, if you consume most of the UFC on television, it's always the same, no matter where it is. Like, it's not like they put the octagon out on a peninsula in uh, Portugal or whatever, backdropped by some beautiful architecture and the sea. It's true. And you're like, oh man, this really makes this night of fights so much more spectacular. Yeah, no, no yeah. man, it's always the same. It's not like, like the, the setting. It's not like a be... Tekken game where like the setting changes drastically. Yeah. So to me, all of this talk about where the UFC goes and when they're going to do a live fight here or there, it's like, it's all very overblown, man. I mean, if we had nothing else going on and I had $50 of expendable income that I never had any bigger plans for, I guess I might go maybe, but like, I also wouldn't have a problem not going. And maybe that's the the larger point. Well, I think it's a little different though, for someone like, uh, some like fans in New Zealand where it's not the same thing as getting on a two hour flight to Vegas, uh, you know, for a weekend and you know, you get to, you have that option whenever you kind of feel like it. They don't really have that. I'm sure that they might get a little more fired up about seeing the UFC just come to their part of the world. Um, but it also does feel like, you know, and this is something that Danny Downs and I were discussing this weekend, because I, I think that the UFC operates on the assumption, and sometimes we all under, operate on the assumption that these local fans, whatever, in this market where the UFC doesn't come, if they, whatever you have to do to give them a, a fight card that's not at a weird time for them, they're going to be totally into it, they never get to see the UFC, the novelty value is enough. But those people, the people who are like the real hardcore fight fans who have been waiting for the UFC to come there for years, they can tell a crappy card when they see it. Yeah, I mean, and I think that those people deserve better cards, frankly. Like, if, if you're going to pay the money and go out and, and, and see those cards, and this is going to be the only time this year the UFC goes to New Zealand, like, I would rather have them get a, a, a quality card. And you know, if they're watching these things live from New Zealand, they're used to staying up late anyway, right? So you got to think that the, the same argument applies, uh, you know, if they're going to go to watch a crappy show at, at 7 or 8 o'clock at night, like... Wouldn't they go to watch a pay-per-view in the middle of, the, like, 2 o'clock in the morning? Yeah. Yeah, they would. I don't know. Uh, one more question. This one from Robert Hill, who writes, Brandon Vera Cut, what's really going on? Oh, and, man, man, we would be remiss if we did not at least doff the cap a little bit to the Pour inventor. Pour one out for the homie, Brandon Vera. The inventor of the phrase, what's really going on, which of course has been appropriated here on the Co-Main Event Podcast and on the Breakfast of Champions newsletter. Uh, just a sad day when a guy who was trumpeted as perhaps the first multi-divisional champion in the UFC uh, gets cut for, I think, the second time, right? Never really lives up to his uh, his potential and perhaps his lasting uh, the thing that we will remember him by is what's really going on. Hey, but that's the good news now. He has time to devote himself to that podcast. What's really going on with Brandon Vera? Comes on right after, right on uh, after uh, UFC tonight, I think, right, right before America's pregame. Yeah, they're tucking that in between Fighter and the Kid and the new Josh Barnett podcast. There you go. Fox Sports is doing now. 
Um, all right, let's do uh, White Elephant Essay Contest winners before we go on to round number one. Now, Ben, here's how we did, did this. As you know, we had two different categories this year, the persuasive essay and the narrative essay. So we're going to do uh, a total of five winners. We're going to do a runner-up and a winner in both of the essay categories. And then we're going to do a grand prize winner of the, the guy that we thought wrote the best overall essay. Okay. So we'll start in the narrative essay cat, uh, category, where your runner-up is Philip Hanna for his essay, Black Holes, Vodka, and Ghetto Style. Nice. The winner in the narrative essay category is Paulo Zambrano for his essay, Path to Emotional Intelligence by Watching People Get Punched in the Face. Yeah, I really enjoyed that one. And I, if I'm not mistaken, I think his was the one uh, where one of the sources he cited was Carl Jung. Mm-hmm. So I think that's right. That's kind of right up our alley. Over in the persuasive essay category, your runner-up is Roberto Arellano for his essay, Looking Beyond Wolf Tickets and Funny Money, The Need for a Fighters Union in MMA. And that might be the best title. Yeah, I was just going to say that. And I feel like uh, that's the kind of title where you could probably write uh, a C-plus essay with that title. And you know we're going to give you at least a B plus A minus on it just because you won us over right from the start. The winner in the persuasive essay category is Corey Weichard for his essay Rankings and Legitimacy from Intuition to Measurement. And uh, I think we're going to probably we'll end up publishing the winners in both of these categories on the on the website so people will know what we're talking about later. But Corey Weichard's essay is fucking intense. <laughs> yes. Right. Yeah, uh, it's maybe a little bit too intense for me to completely wrap my mind brain around right away. Right. See, like that's the thing. He like and 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 I'll be honest with you. The line between the grand prize winner uh, and Corey Weichard's essay was very slim, and uh, uh, so we're we're gonna publish both those. But uh, yeah, Weichard's essay is, is on some statistics. And science shit that, for all we know, he might have just made the whole thing up. Yeah, like I'm looking right now at the little like JPEG, like kind of ranking sort of chart thing that he sent us. And if he did make it up, he did a really good job of making it look like it was some for real shit. Now, I believe that it's for real shit, hence it's the winner. But I'm just saying, a couple of dummies like us, we don't know for no. sure. No, we don't. He could have just he could have pulled this off some kind of advanced baseball metric site and did a find and replace for. Greg Maddox and George St. Pierre, we never would have been the wiser. <laughs> hey, that's actually a pretty good comparison. Uh, and this year's grand prize winner, the uh, the favorite essay of both Ben and mine, uh, goes to Tom Hoisington for his essay, A Sentimental Miseducation, uh, which uh, was a, a good essay, very readable, very approachable, very accessible, uh, common sense topic that I thought still gets overlooked a lot. And I guess just to paraphrase his thesis, it's that, you know, we spend a lot of time trying to figure out if MMA is going to be a big, a big success and, and why it hasn't achieved more crossover support, uh, when, when his thesis is, yeah, it was just kind of a fad back in the, uh, the mid 2000s and we kind of need to get used to that idea or, or that yeah we also need to get used to the idea that like you're just not going to recruit the entire world to this so let's 
talk to each other, those people who are into it, and try not to alienate the fuck out of the existing fans. Right. Uh, so Tom, Hoisington, Corey Weichard, Roberto Arellano, pa- Paolo Zambrano, and Philip Hanna, uh, congratulations to you all. All of the entries we got were good. We'll be reaching out to these five guys to uh, get their uh, their addresses and their uh, their swag requirements, and then uh, we're going to be sending out some prizes. Eventually. Hopefully within like the next month. Probably probably take us a while. <laughs> uh, if you want to get in touch with the co-main event podcast for future uh, episodes, if you got some listener mail you want to send us, you know how to get a hold of us. You can go to the to the website comainevent.com and click the link in the top right-hand corner of the screen that says email the podcast. That will get you in touch with us. While you're there, you can also sign up for the Breakfast of Champions Friday morning newsletter that goes out every week covers the news and notes from MMA that we miss from Monday through Friday. Uh, But as for right now, though, we are going to go ahead and get started with round number one. Ben, there had been rumors for some time that your guy Bjorn Rebney was going to be out of a job over at Bellator MMA and Spike TV. Why is he my guy? Oh, he, he's your guy, right? No, come on, man. Hey, he's your guy. You're you're a no. Bjorn Rebney dick rider, <laughs> no. from what I heard. No, I am not. He fits your profile: tall, gaunt, bald. <laughs> By the way, when you were announcing this round at the beginning, I really thought you were going to go with how Bjorn Rebney dick riding off into the sunset. <laughs> that would have oh, been something. I should have done that. That would have been that would have been good. Um, there were there were rumors for a long a long time that that uh, Spike and Bellator and Viacom were going to move in a different direction away from uh, Bjorn Rebney. And Tim Danaher, the two guys who sort of founded and built Bellator uh, up into the thing that we know that it is today. But then when the actual news broke, it kind of all happened pretty fast with uh, Rebney being out and then a sort of hastily organized conference call to announce Scott Coker being in. Um, I think that there was a lot of uh, excitement around the idea that, that Bellator may now have a new, a new leadership and a new direction, especially with a guy that we all know and a guy that we know, uh, has been successful in the past at, at running the second largest MMA promotion in the United States, uh, from Coker's time with Strike Force and a guy who's been a promoter since the mid 1980s, really, when he started in California as just a kickboxing promoter. But then, of course, Scott Coker shows up on the conference call to announce his, uh, his his taking over that job as president of Bellator and immediately just reverts back to the same thing that he always did in Strike Force and that was having like the most boring possible press conferences where he's not really willing to ever say anything and and his his go-to line is always like ah oh, let me get back to you on that in a couple of weeks and uh in fact prefaced all of his remarks during this uh conference call by saying that it was just his first day on the job and so that he would like the media to quote unquote work with me a little bit here <laughs> uh which you know when you get on a conference call and the first thing out of a dude's mouth is that he's not going to tell you anything always kind of makes you wonder why we're doing the conference call yeah it does but uh, what, i mean come on what did you honestly expect from scott coker that he was going to come bursting on the scene uh, telling all you pussies and pansies to <laughs> 
to straighten the fuck up. No, there's a fact, new sheriff in town. In fact, I think we got exactly what we expected from uh, Scott Coker in this introductory conference call. And wow, nothing will suck the excitement out of a room faster than a than a Scott Coker conference call where he doesn't want to divulge any information. I think there's still some room to be excited about the future of Bellator, given that uh, he's a guy that that really built Strike Force into kind of a formidable uh, company. Until, you know, they sold out to the UFC. So do you share my view in this? Do you feel like maybe uh, we should be a little bit more fired up about Bellator today than we were a week ago? I'm going to wait and see what actually changes as a result. You're going to get back to me I'm going to get back to you in a a week, 10 days. You son Uh, of a bitch. Do you think Scott Coker knows that that's his thing? Do you think he realizes that it's kind of like a calling card at this point? He would have to not look at the internet at all for him <laughs> yes. to, to not know. And really, honestly, like it may not even really be his fault. I just think that in this sport, we're used to, uh, number one, normally having press conferences where a rowdy pop-off who, uh, who is in sole control of an entire company just gets to go out there and kind of freestyle and say whatever he wants. So you get a, you get into a, an executive that has a little bit more close to the vest style and frankly, a style that exists in the rest of the sporting world far more, uh, you know, prevalent than it is here in MMA. It's kind of jarring to, to be faced with Scott Coker, but I mean, like that, that's, you know, in most of the world, that's just how guys do press conferences. Yeah, that is true. Uh, you know, but he had such a different style all the way through, like his strike force days. Because I can remember going to the events, and you, at times, could never even really be sure if he was there. You know, it wasn't like the thing where he was constantly front and center, like all throughout fight week. You know, he usually didn't come uh, to whatever city there, unless they're in San Jose or something. You know, didn't come to the any of this stuff until uh, like fight night. You know, you wouldn't really see him out front at weigh-ins or anything like that a whole bunch. He just wasn't that like really prominent figurehead kind of dude. I wonder if that's what Bellator is trying to get out of him. Like somebody that who they can leverage his contacts and his experience in the business, but don't have to worry about, you know, whether the the force of his personality is going to be a hindrance the way Bjorn Rebney's kind of was at some points. I don't know. I, I guess I'm curious exactly what Bellator is, is trying to get out of that deal. Yeah, and I think that that uh, is probably the $5 billion question, right, in cash. The $5 billion <laughs> in cash question is exactly what Bellator, Viacom, and Spike TV uh, you know, envision as the future of this company. And I think that the mere fact that, that they would go out and get somebody like Scott Coker is probably a sign that they're at least not giving up and that Viacom wants Bellator to be a successful company, uh, and not necessarily just a company that creates content for it on Spike TV, which, I, you know, frankly, in the past has been sort of a valid question. We've never really even known what Viacom's expectations were for Bellator. We didn't know if they, if they, if they really, really wanted it to be this huge moneymaker that could compete with the UFC, or if they were just happy to have, uh, you know, two hours of television every Friday on Spike that they could use to attract advertisers. Yeah. Now, and if they want Bellator to be a real... Uh, player in the industry, then I think that they they made the right hire. But again, that that's a question that that will only be answered in the future. Well, I think one of the things that that like I'm wondering when we talk about you know what do they expect Scott Coker to do is a, I can see how this could possibly just be a kind of thing of like hey Bellator needs to change its identity that the current path it's on isn't good for it and you know has a lot of baggage or whatever we need to to change uh, like kind of a fundamental big shift and like. Scott Coker kind of alluded to it that he said that they're going to kind of get away from the the tournament 
only structure and try to be more traditional of just like booking fights that people want to see from one show to the next. Uh, and you know, you got to kind of think that there probably might be some more changes to come with stuff like that. So it makes you wonder is bringing in a new guy at, at the top, just kind of a part of that. We want a whole new look, a whole new feel. So we got to have a, you know, be able to put out the sign that says under new ownership. So the people who went to this laundromat before when it sucked, will be like, Oh wait, new ownership. Okay. Yeah. I'll go there. And maybe now I won't get my jeans stolen. Right. Like that kind of, you know, that, that was the, the favorite move of businesses in Astoria Queens when I was living right. there, just put out that banner and who knows, you know, and then that can work. I think, uh, I also wonder though, because I was surprised to learn, did you see a tweet from Josh Gross? He was talking about going out and right after uh, the announcement that Bjorn Rebney was out and Scott Coker was in. And he said that he bumped into a longtime, uh, well-known, I think he put it, Bellator employee uh, who kind of surprised him by telling him just how much Bjorn Rebney was hated by the employees of Bellator. Makes me wonder how much like just internal strife and just maybe being a bad boss might have contributed to it. Yeah, in retrospect, it seems like there was a lot of that. It seems like uh, Bjorn Rebney was not well-liked within that company. And, uh, you know, it sounds like pretty uniform dislike of him from all of the people uh, that, that he would come into contact with on a regular basis. Now, not all of them got to go on pay-per-view television and call him a dick rider, uh, but uh, it seems like that there was some consensus there that maybe he wasn't the right guy to be running the company, and I think that that we would be kidding ourselves if we didn't say that was at least part of this here uh, to just get this this uh, change at the top in leadership. Um, I also think that it just seems like Scott Coker is probably has more experience and may be a better MMA promoter than Bjorn Rebney was, and that probably is another uh, strike in his favor. Uh, when I wrote the thing that I wrote on on Bleacher Report last week about Scott Coker coming in and taking over, you know, as part of it, I went back to look at at Strike Force and and just to sort of like refresh my memory about what was going on over there. And you know, even though the thing kind of went down in flames in the end, and that Scott Coker's hand was forced when his business partners uh, in in I think Sacramento decided that they were going to pull out and focus on running their hockey team or like San Jose, right? San yeah. Jose, yeah, bringing a, bringing another sports franchise to San Jose, something like that. But you start looking at the fighters that they had in Strike Force and. Uh, even though you know, you know, in the back of your mind that all of these these fighters came over from Strikeforce, it was really kind of eye opening to me to look at it and be like, well, shit, man. Strikeforce had Ronda Rousey. Strikeforce had Daniel Cormier toward the end. Strikeforce had Luke Rockhold. Strikeforce had Gilbert Melendez. Uh, they they had a ton of fighters that have Nick Diaz. Nick Diaz that have later become big stars for the UFC. And I don't know if that is speaks in Scott Coker's favor that like, look, look what this guy was able to do, like get all this talent and and kind of build a promotion around it or if it's more of a negative to be like well this guy had ronda rousey who has later become arguably the biggest star in the sport and like you know, back when she was in the strike force platform they kind of tried to make her a star but maybe it's just evidence that they didn't really know what to do with the stuff that they had i don't think you i think the ronda rousey example is one that proves that they they were doing a good job because if not for what they did with Ronda Rousey. The UFC doesn't have a uh, women's division right now. Dana White still True. be talking about how it's never going to happen, and he's not into it. Uh, all that stuff, you know. It was because of what they managed to do. And do you remember when the, that first uh, Ronda Rousey Misha Tate fight? 
Uh, and some of their promotion for it was a little bit uh, over the top for those of us who don't want to see uh, women's MMA marketed as foxy boxing uh, when it was, you know, the two of them in evening gowns and stuff like that. But like that stuff, that rivalry really helped put women's MMA on the map. And that was under Strikeforce's watch. And I feel like that's a, one of a lot of things that in people's memories that story gets changed uh, in in retrospect. That people kind of think it was the UFC that that made Ronda Rousey a star and and that uh, really made women's MMA huge. And it wasn't. I mean, they took Strike Force's lead uh, on that. So I think that it's in danger of us remembering it that way. That Strike Force had all the, these people and didn't really do anything with it. But I think it's the opposite. I think it's that the reason that we got to know those people to begin with and that they were able to kind of enter the UFC as stars was because of what Strike Force did with them. Now here is maybe the the well, the most important question, I think, to Scott Coker's success or failure with Bellator is going to be how much money Viacom gives him. But the second most important question may be uh, that he comes into a vastly different situation now when he's running this other company, just in that uh, Luke Rockhold ain't out there anymore for him to go get. You know, Ronda Rousey's not out there for him to go get. Daniel Cormier's not out there. They're all signed to the UFC uh, when the UFC went and, and, and bought Strikeforce and took over all the fighter contracts. So if you're Scott Coker, what do you do here? Do you immediately start reaching out to people like Paul Daly uh, and the, you know, the, the, the handful of uh, MMA free agents that are out there that, that might be able to help you uh, advertise your company and perhaps sell future pay-per-views? Or do you concentrate mostly on you know building from within with the guys that you already have? Well, I think one of the things that Scott Coker brings to your company is existing relationships. Like with a lot of those gyms, especially the Northern California gyms, gyms like AKA, where he found a lot of those guys like Luke Rockhold and Daniel Cormier, uh, and gyms like Caesar Gracie and, and that whole camp, uh, and you know, some of the other Southern California gyms. And like he was pretty good about when Strike Force would go to a city where it hadn't been before, when it's really started branching out and doing shows outside of California. Uh, and go in places like St. Louis, and you'd go, and you know there'd be some guy you'd never heard of on the undercard, but then you'd hear the reaction from the crowd, and you'd realize, wait a minute, that dude seems like he sold about 300 tickets just on his own. Strike Force was pretty good about that that aspect of event promotion, and so I think that that is one thing that uh, Bellator can really benefit from having Scott Coker is that he has a lot of existing relationships with these gyms that maybe you know they're going to be the one to to tug on his cape a little bit and be like, hey, you should check out this guy. Here's your next Luke Rockhold over here. Uh, and then, you know, maybe you get your hooks in them before the UFC does. Yeah. And if uh, if Viacom is at the point now where it's sort of reinvesting in Bellator and it's willing to kind of give Bellator a second look and it opens the uh, purse strings a little bit and, and dips into that $5 billion in cash we're always hearing about, it seems like things could get kind of interesting in the next year or two in the MMA market in general. And if we're uh, looking for a spinoff show, Bjorn Rebney's Dick Riding with the Stars. Well, they're always looking for stuff on Spike. Yeah. So who knows if he has a no compete or, or if he can go market <laughs> that maybe to the E network. I don't know. Uh, let's do Are You Fucking Kidding Me? And then we will. Uh, no, then let's do uh, Sir Nigel's here. Let's do the. He is. Uh, he's been waiting all this time so patiently. He's uh, he's going to lead us in Master Tweet Theater. So let's do that. Uh, that's going to start right now. It's that time again. We welcome back to the show, friend of the podcast and noted theatricalist, Sir Nigel Longstock. Sir Nigel, how are you? Good day to you, sir. I am turnt. You are? Turnt. Are you sure? Fully 
Turret, I'm 95% certain that I am, yes. Well, I don't believe you, but we're going to go ahead anyway. Uh, first of all, good to have you back uh, from, I believe, uh, your ancestral homeland in Iowa, if I'm, if I'm not mistaken. That's true. I visited Iowa to advise the governor on some important agricultural issues. Well, we, we apologize in advance to the people of Iowa. Uh, those of you who don't know how this works, so Nigel's going to read us off some tweets from some people in the MMA sphere, and Chad and I will try and guess who the tweeters in question are. Uh, Sir Nigel, is there a theme this week? Yes, sir, there is. The theme is, it's all in the delivery. Man, I already feel like this is going to go well, don't you, Chad? Well, it's certainly uh, a theme that's going to put the emphasis on Sir Nigel's performance, which is probably, I suppose, not a coincidence. <laughs> You know, I just, if he can stick with it through at least three out of the five tweets, I'm going to be impressed. Sir Nigel, whenever you're ready. Yes, let us begin. It's all in the delivery. Ordinary tweets made wonderful by Sir Nigel. <clears throat> Tweet the first. Where, where? All the pro athletes keep getting caught juicing. Big whoop. Priests get caught raping. That's a bigger problem. <laughs> You felt like your delivery wasn't really sold, that one? Oh, yes. It was beautiful. Okay. Um, I feel like I saw this one. I, it's tough for me to remember exactly which Twitter it was, but I feel War Machine. Feels like a War Machine here. Boy, it's a, it's a, it's a hard one to, to place. Um, I guess you went War Machine. I'll go Poet Philip Baroni just so we have our bases covered. Good thinking. Mr. Nigel? Both fine guesses. Only one correct. It is War Machine. Boom. Prove him wrong, folks. In a society where we must choose between raping priests and juicing pro athletes, which is the bigger problem? Yeah, no, he does bring up a kind of a rock-solid point there. Hmm. Tweet the second. Whenever people ask, how is that Chael Sonnen? Is he just a jerk or what? I say he's one of the classiest and coolest fighters I've met. Your delivery really added nothing to that. It was naturalism, sir. Also, I misread it. Let's let's take another run at it. Oh wow! It Whenever people ask, "How is that Chael Sonnen? Is he just a jerk or what?" I say he is one of the classiest and coolest fighters I've met. Okay. Uh. Fuck it. I'm gonna say Rich Franklin. Um, I'm gonna go. Chael Sonnen, Fox broadcast partner, Kenny Florian. Oh, that's actually a good guess. Sir Nigel? Both fine guesses, one grounded in deductive reasoning, and both wrong! It is Joey Beltran, the executioner. How dare you? How dare you slip a Joey Beltran in there on us? People are always asking him, is Chael Sonnen an asshole? But he says no. Well... <laughs> At least now he tweeted it so people can stop fucking asking him. Mm-hmm. Just, just knocking that out. Tweet the third. Only armature fights are legal in New York, and fighters deserve to be paid and the safety of being overseen by an athletic commission. What are you, what, was the delivery then you giggling at the end? Yes, I added a wry turn to my voice there to express what I feel is the tweeter's less than complete confidence in athletic commissions. <laughs> Um, and and did you say armature? Only armature fights are legal in Spell New that. York. A R M A T U R E. Armature fights. Well, I, Chad, I know you're a big enthusiast of armature porn. 
Uh, so maybe you want to go first here? That is a real thing. Uh, maybe New York, New Jersey native Chris Weidman, the UFC middleweight champion. Okay. You know what? Uh, I'm gonna, I'm gonna piggyback off of that logic and I'm gonna say Matt Sarah. Long Island's own Matt Sarah. Hmm. Both fine guesses, both grounded in regional concerns and both wrong. It is Ronda Rousey. Rowdy Ronda Rousey. Well, that one kind of came out of nowhere on us, I feel. Armature fights. The first step to making a sculpture fight. <laughs> hmm. Tweet the fourth. Someone egged the piss out of my car last night here in Vegas. Unfortunately, they did a really nice job. I want to believe that that's the poet Philip Baroni. I really want that to be the case. I'm going to say, I'm, I'm saying Baroni, Chad. Well, you couldn't possibly be further from the actual tweeter. I saw this one earlier today. It's uh, John Anik. It is. Oh. It is John Anik. What kind of asshole would egg John Anik's car? I'll tell you what kind of great guy would be forced to admit that the assholes who egged his car did a good job. <laughs> that does that does really reflect a, a quality of John Anik's personality. He he has to respect the professionalism of the job. He calls it like he sees it. Hmm. And tweet the fifth. I'm back. Make sure you check me out on Spike. I'm going to put the heat to sleep. Okay. Uh, so the heat being Carl Parisian. Yeah. Uh, poet Philip Baroni is fighting Carl Parisian. Is he not, Chad? Yeah, no, that's... This would be the poet. You know, I feel like Sir Nigel half-assed it on this one. He half-assed the shit out of this. And I don't feel like his his uh, presentation has added anything to any of these tweets. Not what? a goddamn thing. What? <laughs> you <laughs> forget yourself, sir. <laughs> it's almost as if he came up with these at the last minute while he was drunk at a bar watching the World Cup yesterday. That does not sound like me, sir. <laughs> Well, at least this is over. Uh, Sir Nigel, what do you got going on? You know, it's funny you should ask. I've just finished working on an interesting little project. It's a science romance based on a video game and directed by Tyler Perry about a woman who lives in a dystopian future world ruled by corporations where she meets the perfect man. I see. And what is it called? Perfect Dark Man. And what role do you play? I play Perfect Dark Man before the bandages come off. <laughs> well, that was Sir Nigel Longstock, and that was Master Tweet Theater. Thank you, sir. Chad, good news for Vanderlei Silva, according to Vanderlei Silva. He got that whole mess with the drug test thing all cleared up with the Nevada State Athletic Commission. Just went there and laid all his cards out on the table. And now that that's taken care of, uh, I guess it's onward and upward with this fighting career. Oh, no, wait, they're actually still going to punish him, even though he is acting like they're not. Your take, does Vanderlei not understand what's the next step in this process is, or is he trying to sweep it under the rug in the hopes that just his fans will just buy that? Well, it's very weird, man, because this is the second video in a row of Vanderlei Silva where it seemed like he has had no idea what is happening to him. 
Uh, because you remember the, the first video that he put out after, uh, it had originally been announced that he skipped this drug test and Chael Sonnen went on UFC tonight and, and, and ripped him, uh, and that he got pulled from the card. Remember, it took him a day or two to get this video out. And when he did finally release it, it seemed like he still thought that it was a possibility that he might fight at UFC yeah. 175. So he yet, also went with the no obla route, uh, right. for his explanation for the, for the, uh, why he skipped out on the drug test, and then as he admitted uh, in this other video where he actually appears in front of the commission, that was not at all true. That was just a bald-faced lie. Right, and so he had that video, and then he had this second video where he emerges from the courtroom like he just got found innocent. <laughs> He's going to go out there and, and, and hold hands with his lawyer and, and put their arms up and shake their fists in victory. Shout only in America over uh, and over again. But but really, like, uh, it just makes you wonder, like, does Vanderlei Silva really not understand what's going on here? Or is he, like you said, just sort of like whitewashing this thing uh, for for people that might be inclined to still believe what he has to say? And the honest answer is I really have no idea because he thinks his lawyer is a doctor. So <laughs> who knows, man? And I assume that like down in Brazil that that uh, that's sort of like a colloquialism that your attorney would probably have some kind of equivalent. Yeah. Doctorate he got, he got an advanced degree. Yeah. So sure. Well, this video, the editing of his video, especially the portion like the the editing of what actually happened at the commission, like if that was your only exposure to what happened there, you would come away with a very different idea. Like he cut out entirely like the majority of that hearing, it seemed, was the dude who was the test collector trying to explain all the stuff he went through like trying to get some of Vanderlei Silva's blood and urine uh, and the lengths Vanderlei went to avoid that. Right. And he cut out all of that. There was none of that in his video. Uh, and it was just like cut straight to the commission being like, well, thanks for coming and we wish you well. Like, you know, so that seems intentional to me. Yeah. If not on Vanderlei's part, then on somebody in the Vanderlei camps part to be like, all right, let's put together the pieces of this that seem to reflect most favorably on Vanderlei. Well, we've known for a while that whoever it is that edits Vanderlei Silva's uh, videos is an artiste. Like yes. that person knows what they're doing. You know, but and you I, I mean, and that's the thing. I, I as I made the, my response video to Vanderlei Silva uh, in in the Vanderlei Silva video style, and as Sir Nigel pointed out when we were discussing it, you know, it's good if you can parody it. Uh, Vanderlei Silva's videos, they, they, if you even as crazy as they can be, they do have a, a certain flavor to them. Yeah. And, uh, you know, if, if everyone out there in co-main event podcast listener land has not taken the opportunity to actually go back and watch the commission hearing, you should do that. There's a version out from MMA Weekly now that's, uh, was on YouTube this morning. I know that is just like the 18 minutes or so that Vanderlei Silva spends in front of the Nevada State Athletic Commission at the very tail end of like an hour and 50 minute long meeting. So go ahead and check that one out rather than sit through the whole thing. But, uh, you should watch it because it, it, really leaves no doubt that a this Nevada State Athletic Commission's like newly aggressive surprise testing regimen uh it works like it caught all three of the guys who were supposed <laughs> to engage in this fight at UFC 175 caught all three of them cheating and uh it also reinforces the fact uh to the lengths that these guys are willing to go to to sort of try to get out of these random or surprise tests when the guys show up because like you were saying most of it is testimony from the sample collector whose life just sounds miserable frankly yeah. because most of his day is trying to find Vanderlei Silva and waiting to get texts back from 
from Vanderlei, Vanderlei Silva's wife, and from Bill Bennett, the new uh, executive director of the Nevada State. Wait a second. Actually, that makes the life of a sample collector sound exactly like the life of an MMA journalist. <laughs> yeah, uh, except, you know, we expect this shit. Right. He, so, he's probably hoping for a little bit more cooperation. So let's let's just recount what this guy has to say. Number one, that both Vanderlei Silva and his wife uh, gave falsified phone numbers to the Nevada State Athletic Commission. Both of them changed their cell phone numbers by one digit, which Wait. is like the shit when you go to the store and buy something <laughs> at Best Buy and they're like, hey, can we put your uh, cell phone in our system? And you, and, you, and you panic and you say yes, but then you like change it at the end and you change one digit. Uh, so he couldn't get a hold of them. He wasn't at his house. He went to his gym. Vanderlei uh, says he's going to go talk to his like manager or something, but clearly his manager's not really there. And then Vanderlei like sneaks out the back and the guy, this, the poor son of a bitch who is the sample collector, <laughs> gives the testimony. He's like, I casually followed after him. Yes. I went around the corner, discovered he wasn't in the bathroom. And then he says something hilarious like, I ultimately came to the conclusion that he had left. Yeah. Uh, no, that is great. His t- and he, he seems like so ashamed. Like about like ashamed and like he's holding in a simmering rage right. about and then what has happened to the him. The other thing we shouldn't leave out is that Vanderlei Silva's wife calls this guy and says they didn't expect the test, so they're wondering if they can reschedule it. Like that's not the entire fucking point of the entire operation. Well, and that is something else. I mean, like so the the basic facts of it are Vanderlei goes to the commission and says. Yes, I ran away from the test because I was taking diuretics after I was prescribed anti-inflammatories for this wrist injury. Um, I was taking diuretics to minimize the inflation, which is that's what the anti-inflammatories are for, I would think, uh, and to expel like the water that I was retaining as a result of these anti-inflammatories. Like basically the most innocuous reason he could possibly want to avoid a drug test, right? Like, I was using a thing that's a masking agent, um, but I was not using it to mask stuff. Like, you know, the the most innocent you could possibly make yourself out to be in that situation. But also his lawyer, Dr. Goodman, uh, noted that he, in 20 years and 50 professional fights or whatever, had never tested, never failed a, a drug test and also had never been subjected to a surprise drug test like this. Which is frightening because Chael Sonnen actually said the same thing on UFC Tonight when he retired during the original live version of his retirement, which was later altered in the internet <laughs> version. Uh, so this part does not appear there. But like Chael Sonnen said the same thing to Kenny Florian that he says this had never happened to me before. This what he calls, quote unquote, out of competition testing, even though that's not the accurate phrase from it for it. But it it does imply that both... Vanderlei Silva and Chael Sonnen had never been subjected to this surprise drug testing before. And frankly, we had heard for months in the case of Vitor Belfort that the UFC had been, quote unquote, testing the shit out of him. But the first time he shows up in Vegas and is subjected to this out of the blue independent third party test, he fails that. So uh, we're three for three with these guys now, uh, which I think just underscores that you need this kind of testing in M- in MMA. And I'm glad to hear that the Nevada State Athletic Commission says that this is going to be the new normal there, that they're going to start subjecting guys to these random tests. And uh, uh, that, you know, these guys, uh, they don't like these surprises. No. And because uh, they get caught doing what they're really doing when they think nobody's looking. Well, and, you know, let's say for the sake of argument that Vanderlei Silva's explanation is 100% accurate. Okay. Uh, even though he's already, you know, lied to us once about what happened there. So, but let's say he's, he's totally telling the truth here. It was diuretics, which he was taking just because of the anti-inflammatories, uh, which, you know, 
kind of sounds like I was just smoking that weed from a cataracts kind of thing, but whatever. Uh, he would have been so much better off just going, failing for diuretics, then showing up and be like, here's why I was on those diuretics. Uh, because then you at least remove like one level of like trust issues that we have with you. Because right now we don't know what he was on. Like we, we have to take his word that it was diuretics and then his word that the only reason he was taking it was because of the anti-inflammatories, not to mask something else, which, you know, probably wouldn't be trying to mask it that far out because he didn't expect to be tested. Uh, so now like we don't really know what you, what you had in your system that you didn't, but we do know that you, you had something in your system that you didn't want them to find out. Like you're, you're so much better off. Like if you can say, Hey, I tested positive for diuretics and not for, you know, Winstrol or something, that, that is a so much better look for you as a fighter. I, I don't understand how, uh, anybody would think that, you know, the best thing to do if you were really on just diuretics, uh, would be to just bail out of that, that drug testing situation and hope for the best, not answer your cell phone, go see a movie, turn, <laughs> turn the cell phone off and just wait for it all to blow over. Right. And I think another aspect of that is that we have learned in the wake of this, that it has seemed like Dana White and the UFC is visibly more angry with Vanderlei Silva for skipping out on this drug test than it is with either Chael Sonnen or Vitor Belfort for just flat out failing their drug tests. And in the case of Vitor Belfort, you know, covering it up for three months. Uh, so yeah, I think you're right. It seems like the thing to do is take the test and fail it at that point. Once the, the sample collector actually shows up, um, and, and it does, I think, cast further shade on Vanderlei Silva's explanation. Um, it does seem weird to me, though, that, that, uh, the UFC does seem so upset with Vanderlei Silva and not as upset with these other two guys to the, to the extent that, uh, you know, they aired this commission hearing on Fight Pass, which I think was probably just another way to actually, well, they aired this one for free on their website, but, uh, it was also available on Fight Pass, which seems like it's another thing that, that they want to add to, fight past to get people to sign up for it. But then that Dana White sent out this tweet right before Vanderlei was going to go in front of the commission that was like, Hey guys, it's time for Vanderlei Silva to appear in front of the commission. Tune in if you want to see what happens, which yeah. made the whole thing take on this air of like personal revenge. Which yeah. I thought was a little bit. We're burning the witch today, guys. Come on, come on down to the town square and see it. It's going to be a good time. Rides for the kids. So it was, it was a very weird, uh, we don't know what's going to happen to any of those three guys at this point. Chael Sonnen says he's retired, so maybe his suspension ultimately won't matter. Vanderlei Silva, despite the fact that he thinks that uh, he's solved his problems, all cleared up. he's going to have to go back in there and probably get suspended. And Vitor Belfort, who was supposed to be originally scheduled to be at this hearing, but then later got bumped to sometime in the future, still has to go there and, and face the music for his drug-related infraction. Uh, so it's going to be a while, I think, yet before we find out what is going to happen to all three of these guys. Um, but I think it's good that the Nevada State Athletic Commission is doing this kind of testing because absent real industry-wide Olympic-style testing, like this is sort of the best thing we have for right now. Yeah, and let's start making some of these cheaters nervous, man. You never know. That that one sad sack dude in the, the droopy suit might show up at your gym, and then what? Yeah. <laughs> All right, well, let's do Are You Fucking Kidding Me now and uh, then move on to round number three. Ben, what's your Are You Fucking Kidding Me for this week? Well, Chad, I don't know if you've seen the steady trickle of these clips from the uh, EA Sports UFC game. Uh, there seem to be glitches aplenty 
Uh, and some of them are downright fucking hilarious, particularly one, uh, we, we have a whole roundup of them on MMA Junkie where you can see uh, a bunch of the hilarious clips. Uh, one in particular that is my favorite is where a dude seems to be playing Vitor Belfort versus, uh, Shogun Hua. And kind of at the start of the fight, like when they announce it, Vitor Belfort just falls down dead, uh, <laughs> before he can ever be touched. And the guy's incredulous reaction, uh, where he's just like, what the fuck, dude? What the fuck is that? Uh, are you fucking kidding me? A, that's awesome. And are you fucking kidding me? B, probably not the rollout you're hoping for if you're EA Sports there, right? Yeah. The one thing everybody's talking about your game is the hilarious, crazy glitches. Yeah, that's probably fucking kidding me. didn't go down as it was planned. Although one of the the awesomest parts about it uh, is in one in, where, in which uh, Clay Guida uh, has a similar thing where he falls down just pretty much d- dead uh and the description by the dude who uploaded the video reads clay guida sadly died in the octagon in this fight he will forever be remembered as an awesome dude well that's true that yes. much is true uh ben this week my are you fucking kidding me and goes out to to uh the mma industry at large uh which responded to what i thought were two obviously faked instagram posts between uh, Dana White and Mike Tyson, one being an obviously choreographed video, and then the second one seemingly to me to be an obviously staged uh, photo of uh, Mike Tyson having written the word dick on Dana White's forehead. <laughs> uh, are you dick. fucking kidding me, people? We're just going to let these dude dudes engage in professional wrestling style worked Instagram pictures, and then we're just going to uh, wholeheartedly report them as though like it's an awesome thing that happened. Are you fucking kidding me? Fucking kidding me? This is what the internet is for, is to, for people to get up and shout fake at everything. I know, man. It's, I was really surprised. I thought that we had a little bit better sense than that. Anyway, that's going to do it for round number two. We will be right back with round number three. Right, Ben. So UFC Fight Night 43 and UFC Fight Night 44 both occur on the same day this Saturday. Uh, As we mentioned before, one from San Antonio, one from New Zealand. Uh, I believe your your Fight Pass main event will be uh, Nate Marquardt against James Tahuna in a bout between two guys who have both fallen on hard times. Nate Marquardt has lost his last three straight fights and James Tahuna has lost his last two straight fights, although uh, both at light heavyweight. Um, and then over on Fox sports one, we're going to get into what is sort of a legitimately interesting featherweight main event uh, between Cubs Swanson and Jeremy Stevens. I guess the introductory question here would be is good sense going to prevail for you this weekend. And you're only going to take in part of this, or are you going to go ahead like you did the last time this happened and do the full Gilligan's Island style three hour tour with all of this shit? Honestly, I don't think I could do that with this one if I wanted to just because of start times. I, I mean, the the one from New Zealand, if I'm not mistaken, the prelims begin at 2.30 a.m. Eastern time, uh, which is 12.30 uh, 
you know, just after midnight here in the One True Time Zone. Main card begins at 5 a.m. Eastern. That's 3 a.m. in the One True Time Zone. Come on, man. Come on. So you're pussing out on this I one. I can't man. do that. I, I mean... Maybe if I were like a, a young single guy who could just stay up at weird hours and, and watch some, some subpar fights from on the internet from acro- halfway across the world and there would really be no consequences for me, I could catch up on that sleep later, then maybe I would consider it. But uh, you know how it is having a small child where you got to take advantage of your sleep opportunities, your sleep opportunities, if you will, while you can. You can't be getting up. Uh, you know, all hours of the night to watch Robert Whitaker and Mike Rhodes. You're going to pay for that later. Yeah, that that is that is very true. Um, well, let's talk about this uh, Jeremy Stevens Cub Swanson fight, uh, which is going to be the main event of of the televised fight card. Um, Jeremy Stevens dropped down to featherweight earlier this year after three straight losses at, at lightweight, and he's been on a little bit of a tear. Uh, he's got three wins down there at featherweight and now uh, is going to be in kind of a uh, litmus test fight here against Cub Swanson. If he wins it, I suppose a dude uh, who is as inherently exciting, uh, parenthetically possibly crazy, uh, as Jeremy Stevens, if he goes out there and does something impressive against Cub Swanson, that probably puts him on the short list of guys who are a fight or two away from uh, getting in there against Jose Aldo. Uh, whereas Cub Swanson is a dude who seems hungry to uh, go back and uh, rewrite the past, maybe uh, uh, distance himself from the fact that he got knocked out by the one of the craziest fucking double flying knee deals ever yeah. in the history of MMA. So he also wants another shot at, uh, at Jose Aldo, but this, I guess a legitimately interesting fight. It is a legitimately interesting fight. And one where, I mean, I, you're not going to see too many times where I'm going to turn down an opportunity to watch Cub Swanson fight, you know, and fighting a guy like Jeremy Stevens, it seems like, you know, two dudes are uh, going to go in there and it's going to be a contest to see who's the first one to back down. Uh, that is an interesting fight and with interesting stakes for the division. I mean, I think that you look at some of uh, Cub Swanson's recent performances and you have to think that he is a different fighter now than the one who suffered that highlight reel knockout to Jose Aldo. Uh, you know, he goes out there and wins this one, you know, maybe uh, puts a guy like Jeremy Stevens away. You know, then his claim to a title shot starts to look really, really strong. So, I mean, I, I think that there is a lot at stake uh, at this one here. Uh, kind of the the exact opposite of what we see in the in the main event uh, from the New Zealand fight card, where it's just to see you know who's going to fall farther. Well, yeah, I mean, I guess you could make the case that the James Tahuna Nate Marquardt fight has some uh, some consequences because the guy who loses may not have a job. Negative stakes, as I like to say. Yeah, uh, although you know now that. Uh, now that Scott Coker's over there throwing money in the air in Bellator, it's like Scott Coker's in one of those 80s game shows where they put you in the booth where the money <laughs> blows around and you have to grab that dough. Uh, you know, maybe uh, maybe you'd want to hang on to Nate Marquardt, even if he does lose to James Tahuna here. Well, that brings up an interesting question, though, and it maybe would be something that would tell us how the UFC even sees some of these events. If... If you take the loser of a main event, even if it is a fight pass main event uh, because of a weird start time, uh, if you take the loser of a main event and fire him, what have you just told us about that 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 fight card and that main event? 
well, nothing good, but also nothing that we didn't already know. You know, like uh, it's it's no secret where these dudes are in their careers. Uh, Nate Marquardt hasn't won a fight since he beat Tyron Woodley in Strike Force in July of 2012. So it looked awesome in that fight, though. It's not like we're looking at that this James Tahuna fight uh, where Marquardt comes in off two consecutive first round KO losses and thinking, oh, well, this is going to be a barn burner. Like this is. This is flush with positive opportunities for everyone involved. <laughs> yeah, but you do send that message that, like, well, we went ahead and scraped up that, that bottom of the barrel to put together this main event uh, just to see, you know, who was going to be the, the loser who has to leave town. I mean, it really does, like, tell people that you know right from the start that your main event was not really a main event. Yeah, well, that's sort of been the inherent message of this entire year, right? That's sort of like the... the yeah, but well, you, you, they usually pretend. They usually will put some spin on it and pretend. If you fire the guy who loses the main event, you can't really spin your way out of that one, can you? Well, I think that the, the UFC believes it can spin its way out of anything that's at true. this point. Uh, and it has yet to have its Chael Sonnen with Mike Hill moment where uh, it gets just in over its head on Fox Sports 1 and then has to show up and abruptly retire the next day. <laughs> uh I don't know, man. Like, is there, is there anything interesting at all happening on this uh, on this fight pass uh, show that's going to be in the middle of the night? Uh, I, I mean, there are, there are a couple interesting fights there. Uh, uh, you know, the, of course, the lumbering continuation of the heavyweight division. Uh, we'll get to see exactly uh, how that one plays out. That's your that's your co-main event, by the way. So, Apalele and Jared Rochal. Uh, Hatsu Hiyoki and Charles Oliveira, not not a terrible fight there. But really, you compare side-by-side side with the other fight night event happening stateside, and there's not much of a contest. I mean, that uh, the San Antonio show is by far uh, the stronger one on paper, uh, which conventional wisdom tells us uh, means it will suck and the other one will be awesome somehow, right? Isn't that how it works? That's what we're led to believe. That yeah. the, those fights that look bad on paper, oh, they always overachieve. I mean, I mean it just seems like... Uh, Cub Swanson, Jeremy Stevens, and, uh, you know, guys like Ricardo Lamas or Kelvin Gastelum, uh, you know, you got Joe Ellenberger finally getting to make his UFC debut on this one. Like any of those would be a, a huge, tremendous shot in the arm to the New Zealand fight card. Uh, but that's the kind of thing that makes you wonder, like, how exactly the UFC means for us to digest this stuff, assuming that it means for us to digest it at all. Uh, I think that you would have to be operating under the assumption that the UFC plans for you to watch this one live and watch the other one bit by bit when you get a second uh, throughout the weekend, you know, maybe Sunday afternoon, you go back and you check up and see uh, how any one of those fights did. But uh, by then, you're probably, you know, running into spoilers and stuff like that everywhere you look, right? I mean, I don't know. It just seems like, is the UFC doing this stuff knowing, like, Okay, here's the one that you don't really have to care about. But hey, if you hear something cool happen, maybe go check it out. Uh, and the other one is the one you're supposed to watch live. Do you think that that is the, the kind of like stated goal in the uh, internally for the UFC headed into something like this? I mean, I think that in some instances we have to take them at their word that they're doing this fight card, these international fight cards, and particularly this one in New Zealand just kind of for the live fans there and that they're putting it on fight pass because you know why the hell not yeah. you've got fight pass you have the the uh, the broadcast capabilities 
Um, it's sort of like a no lose situation for them. Uh, now that fight passes up and running and the, you know, they, they're so used to this live production stuff. Uh, if there's going to be an event happening somewhere in the world, well, shit, you might as well broadcast it live on the internet. Uh, and, and I think then you get into a situation where like if the UFC isn't really expecting this fight pass card to pertain to a larger audience really, or, or be interesting to a larger audience, then I think you get into the more interesting question of how, the mixed martial arts world is meant to react to it, right? And that's sort of on us as a as a people, as a subculture, to kind of like, are we going to be willing to uh, let people make the choice to not watch this and just kind of let it slip into the ether? Or are we going to continue to do this, like, aggressive bullshit that we have done in the past where we're like, well, if you don't watch all this shit, you suck as a fan, bro. And to well, me, like, that's kind of a more interesting question. Well, if, when you say we do that, I mean, the UFC does that, right? Dana White does that, that real fight fans will get up at 2 a.m. Uh, to watch some dudes they never heard of. Well, in yeah, Zealand. but that, that also exists, like, on the on the old message boards. And I don't, you know, I think we've talked about this before. You get into a chicken and the egg situation where I don't know if that just trickles down from the top or if that's, that situation would be there uh, e- even if the UFC was as cool and understanding as possible about it. Uh, I suspect that it would probably exist just because, you know, we're in this niche subculture where the whole thing is a competition to figure out who's the best, coolest, hardest fan out there. Yeah, I mean, I feel like, you know, I could see the, the case on both sides. Like, where the, the point that Danny Downs argued for was like, hey, if you're trying to build new fans across the globe, then you gotta, you know, go there, go to places like New Zealand, give them a show at a time that feels like a time that's when people go to shows. Uh, and, you know, even if you're not giving them the best fight card, you know, they want to come out there and see some UFC, uh, and they're just happy about it. Uh, I mean, I don't know. I think that that, like we said before, I, I think that that does not take into account what those fans might actually be wanting. Like, I think that you're you're pretending that, you know, they should all just be really happy for the opportunity to give the UFC their money. And I think that if you're a fan of this sport and you're supporting it, that you have the right to ask for something in return that is, you know, worth the money. And stuff like this, I mean, it just kind of seems like... All right, we'll get we'll put a guy who's from there on the card, and you'll all show up to see it because of that. And if you dare complain about it, then you are assholes. Uh, you're you know this MMA fans who bitch all the time, as if you know like paying for this stuff over and over again uh, does not earn you the right to like say what you like and don't like, and are willing and are not willing to pay for. I don't know. You know, I, I mean. I could, it's like that same question about whether we would go see the UFC in, in Missoula. I mean, I could, I could see how you can make an argument either way, but I definitely would not tell anybody who decided, you know what, man, this isn't worth my money. I'm going to watch this shit on TV. I would not say that you are not like a real fight fan for that. I mean, exercise some, some judgment. I think that's, you know, you can be a real fight fan and do that. All right, well, let's do just saying stuff and then we'll get out of here. Ben, we talked about this earlier in the, uh, the victorious Vanderlei Silva post-commission video. Uh, but this week, man, I'm just saying, if Vanderlei Silva wants to make this video where he appears triumphant and that he's f- fully put this trouble with the Nevada State Athletic Commission behind him for future reference, maybe don't have his wife in the shot because she is not doing a good job making him look innocent. There's a couple of times in this video where Vanderlei Silva says stuff and you can see his wife look at him like, well, you're lying, but I guess we're going to go with it. And then right at the end of the video, he's like, everything's fine. Isn't that right, honey? Or something like that. And his wife again makes his face like, 
Yep. <laughs> That's what we're going with. So I'm just saying, if we're going to try to make Vanderlei Selva look innocent, uh, maybe next time put the wife behind the camera. Just saying. She did have the thing. I, I recognized in her a look that I've seen on my own face before uh, where when you're a kid and your parents are like, get in this picture. Oh, no, go, go stand there next to Mickey Mouse. You're going to take this picture. And you're like... I guess I have to do it, but I don't have to look enthusiastic about it in the picture. Uh, that, that was what I saw, uh, looking there. My just saying for this week, Chad, is, uh, according to Nate Marquardt, who again fights in that main event of UFC Fight Night 43 at like two in the goddamn morning, uh, he moved back up to middleweight because, quote, that's what God wanted me to do was to move back up to middleweight. I'm just saying, if that is true, Basically, I guess that means God is just like any run-of-the-mill MMA fan you'd find at Buffalo Wild Wings who sits around uh, opining on stuff like, you know what, I think Nate Marquardt was better as a middleweight, bro. I'm just saying. Just saying. Uh, well, that's going to do it for this week's co-main event podcast. We'll be back next week to tell you all the stuff that happens at UFC Fight Night 43 slash 44 and also look ahead to uh, UFC 175, which comes our way on July 5th. As for right now, though, we are done. We are through. We are out. So do you think that uh, part of God's plan was to have Nate Marquardt move back to middleweight and then have him fight at 2 in the morning on an internet stream only? Uh, fight card? You know, here's the thing about God that a lot of people don't know. He keeps weird hours. Uh-huh. Yeah, he's, he's kind he's of a... On the internet. Yeah. Really odd times of the night. Yeah, he's, he's, he's more of a, a night deity. Not much of a morning guy. Uh, so yeah, uh, that, that fits right in line. Uh, also, 